Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And, uh, well, <laughs> I've been hearing that some of our fellow saloners are wondering why there haven't been more podcasts from the salon lately. Well, the truth is that, uh, well, just like everybody else on the planet right now, I'm not really sure what direction we should be heading in. So, uh, like a lot of us, I'm kind of taking a wait-and-see approach and only producing a few podcasts uh, that may be of some practical benefit right now. But uh, don't worry, I'm going to keep the same old format that I've used for over 15 years now, and uh, there's still going to be some new Terrence McKenna talks every once in a while, so that'll remain the same. However, the world as a whole is never going to return to the state we were in just last year. Like it or not, uh, we are all being challenged to figure out how we want to reorganize this little planet. As for staying in touch with our fellow saloners, I've been doing what I can. Uh, well, at least for the first three months of the lockdowns, I hosted four live salons every week. And uh, lately I've modified that schedule a bit by only hosting two live salons a week, one on Monday and one on Thursday. I've been hosting that uh, live Monday night salon now for over three years, and they take place at 6.30 p.m. on San Diego time. Well, after the pandemic began, I also began hosting live salons every Thursday. The Monday salons take place at 6.30 p.m. San Diego time, and the Thursday salons take place at 6.30 p.m. London time, which is 10.30 in the morning in San Diego. That way, some of our European saloners can join us, and from time to time, I'll also be hosting a live salon in a time zone that's better suited to our friends down under and in Asia. As you know, uh, I've been hosting these live salons for my supporters on Patreon for the past three years. And thanks to these wonderful saloners, I've been able to eliminate those month-long pledge drives, and also I've been able to publish my new books directly into the public domain and make them available for free. So I owe a lot to my Patreon supporters. Now, when the pandemic arrived, uh, well, a lot of people lost their jobs, and I wanted to continue supporting my Patreon followers and others who aren't in a position to really support anything right now. And to fix this problem, we set up a server on Discord, which is the communication platform used by a lot of gamers, and on Mondays and Thursdays, I post the links to the live salons there. So uh, already there are over 500 fellow saloners interacting each day uh, on Discord, on the Psychedelic Salon Discord server, and uh, the conversations are really fascinating. This is a completely free service, by the way. You don't even need a credit card to join, and uh, it's a great place to find the others, find the links to the live salons, and, uh, well, I hope to see you there, uh, because uh, right now that's uh, where a lot of us are congregating. Now, to join us on Discord, just go to psychedelicsalon.com, and on the home page, you're going to find a link that'll take you to our Discord server. That's all there is to it. Now, in addition to the live salons, I've been also joining the live podcast recordings being made by my old friend, the Dope Fiend. Our old-timers here in the salon are going to fondly remember him and his Dopecast, 
Well, every Sunday a new Dope Fiend Quarantine program is posted, and uh, for it, the Dope Fiend is joined by various characters that you might remember from several years ago. A wide-ranging roundtable, very stony chat about (laughs) things like uh, whether cannabis protects stoners from the worst of the coronavirus, and where the U.S. and U.K. stand right now in terms of the pandemic. And then, of course, there's a Karen update. (laughs) It's a, a really fun and interesting group of stoners that you you can tune in and listen to when you don't want to talk alone some night. Now, uh, at long last, let's get on with today's program, which is a recording of a live salon that was held this past Monday, July 13th. And if you think that this introduction has been long, well, you've got another one coming uh, when I open the live salon and bring in Brandon Quinton, who, as it turns out, is also a longtime fellow saloner. And uh, by the way, Brandon is going to be back for another live salon with us in a few weeks. So if there are some questions you have about cryptocurrency that aren't answered here today, you can join our live salon and ask them yourself. And now, here's yet another long introduction to, <laughs> to Brandon Quinton and his ideas about what Bitcoin and mycelium have in common. There's so many different things we can talk about tonight. And and uh, once I open it up to questions, you know, people are, if I open it up right now, we'd be jumping all over the place. And uh, I've, I've read some of your work, Brandon, and, and uh, listened to your uh, one of your podcasts. And so I have a fairly good idea of where you're coming from. And since uh, here we're kind of preaching to the choir when we talk about psychedelics, as you know, I mean, you're a slaughter. So uh, I, I, I think we can get to it. I really want to get to your your concepts because your concept of uh, mycelium and, and Bitcoin is just spot on, I think. Uh, but what I thought we'd do is, because uh, I want to podcast this discussion, and, uh, you know, right now everybody is, is uh, you know, wondering what's next, but of course nobody knows what's next, <laughs> and, and I want to leave that part of the discussion to the end, and I thought we'd start out talking about Bitcoin, because, you know, uh, most people who everybody's heard of Bitcoin, but a lot of people are not really sure what about it, how do you buy it and stuff like that. And then I'd like to go into the importance of blockchain and how how the decentralization is so important. Uh, Following that, uh, some of the other cryptocurrencies, you know, I know we uh, Bitcoin is the the mother of all cryptocurrencies, in my opinion, actually. But, uh, you know, I'd like to talk about Ether and some of the others. And then. The, the banks and governments are coming out with their own cryptocurrencies and uh, as our, uh, you know, uh, investment bankers and all. And then uh, if, if we uh, still have any energy left, uh, maybe we can speculate some about what, what we think might be coming after this pandemic. But I think that <clears throat> right now, you know, there's it's, it's kind of not worth much time to speculate about what's next because, uh, you know, here in California, we're still shutting down a second time and stuff like that. And, and you know, there's all kinds of scenarios about what can happen, what next. And, and as far as a, a, a governmental political situation, uh, I can see anything from going back to just where we were with nation states into a new world with no nation states and anything in between is probably what's going to happen. But what I, I really have a very firm belief that no matter what happens, uh, I don't know for sure if it'd be Bitcoin, I'm hoping it is, but some cryptocurrency I think is, is going to 
be much more important than people realize today. And, and with that, why don't I, I let you go from there and I'll kind of ask some questions and we'll open it up and uh, go from there, Brandon. But I really appreciate your time. And let, let me just preface this with the fact that what really uh, excited me about your background is that you spent a lot of time, you know, researching this, looking into this and investigating it. But, uh, you know, I started uh, mining Bitcoin when it was in the pennies. Uh, and then I gave up and, you know, but I've been with Bitcoin since the beginning and I haven't, you know, I still am, I'm a firm believer in the long-term viability of cryptocurrency uh, and, and, and possibly Bitcoin. So uh, let me just kind of preface it saying what excited me about the fact is that, you know, I had kind of had the feeling that, you know, I got involved so early on and then it got so complex and I got I just couldn't keep up with it all and just let it all go by the board. And I thought, well, I missed the wave. And then I hear you come in and say, you know, it's, it's only the last few years. You've gotten deep into it. And so you give a lot of hope to all of us that I think that uh, nobody has missed the wave yet. I think it's still building possibly. And with that long preface, <laughs> I'll let you do some talking, Brandon. Thank you, Lorenzo. Uh, yeah, first off, it's really, really an honor to be here. I've been listening to the salon for about a decade now back when there were almost no other podcasts on the topic. And so there was many uh, come downs where I would throw on an old Terrence McKenna talk and soothe myself to fall asleep or something like that. So it's pretty cool to be here. Really appreciate it. Um, and I got addressed right off the bat regarding timing. Pretty much everyone who arrives at Bitcoin feels that they arrived late. And so it doesn't matter if it was this year, five years ago, or 10 years ago, everyone has that same feeling. And it's kind of a little ego thing. You know, you usually hear about it a few years prior before you end up buying some. And so we sort of anchor our minds to a previous time or previous price. And we sort of hide ourselves about when we get in. So totally normal. Don't let that stop you. Um, if we look globally, it's only about 1% of the world who owns any Bitcoin at this point. And it's only about $150 billion market cap, which is roughly 50 times smaller than gold. And so if Bitcoin is going to continue, which it's my belief it will, there's a long way to go. And so I would call it more like a, you know, a precocious fifth grader in its development. And it's going to go through puberty soon. So it'll, it'll start to get a little more feisty as the world starts to unravel. At least that's my belief. Um, yeah, so I guess in order to discuss Bitcoin, I think it's really important to talk about money for a minute. And money is a concept that is surprisingly slippery and hard to understand. Most people spend their whole life and they don't really have a good concept of what it is. And there's a lot of stigmas attached. And I think it's important to start there. So, um, you know, I know it has a bad reputation, but money is simply just a tool. And it's a tool that we all use every day. And so I think it's, it's important that we understand what it is. And fundamentally, it started off to solve, it was, you know, used, it emerged through our ancient uh, ancestors to solve a certain number of problems. The main problem is the double coincidence of wants. And all that really means is two people want to trade. I've got chickens, you've got cows. And how do we trade, you know, five chickens for a cow or what's the, what's the trade there? And so what happened was we emerged on different uh, things, different mediums that represent value that we all just sort of agree on. And these started as things like shells or beads or giant rye stones. And eventually humanity 
uh, converged on gold as sort of the universal money for the planet. It emerged in all these different separate places. And the reason why we selected gold is because it had the best monetary properties, things like portability, durability, um, and most important, a few others, but most important is scarcity. And so there's only a finite supply of gold and the gold supply, the total supply above ground increases by about 2% each year. So a relatively scarce amount of gold. And that's important because then you can anchor value to that scarce asset. And so um, for about 5,000 years, we've used gold. And then in uh, the early 1900s, uh, the U.S. government, right around World War I time, um, we decided to just leave the tether to gold and we created what's the U.S. dollar, what we now know as fiat currency, which simply means by decree. And so um, that's a totally different thing. And in 1971, we actually left our tether to gold. And so we removed the, the gold standard. You could say it's not backed by anything, which is very useful to the U.S. government and any political will that they might have, because you can print unlimited money. Um, you can fund perpetual war. You can bail out your buddies. And that whole process, um, it, it hurts the little guy. We're, we're essentially borrowing from tomorrow. And it, it's a, a, whole, a whole process of extracting from the little guy and, and distributing that wealth to the top. And it's very easy to see this. If you look at charts starting in 1971, when we left the gold standard, you can see human productivity skyrockets. So the average person can do the work of 10 or 20 or 50 back then. However, our wages, our real wages, what our wages give us in terms of purchasing power has actually declined. And so we're producing more and we're earning less, but where is that value being created? Because it's very clear that humanity is producing way more things, way more value. And that, that value is, is being eaten up by financial intermediaries, things like banks and corporations. And that leaves the little guy with less and less each year. And we're seeing a, a massive amount of social unrest now. And it's my belief that the foundation to social unrest is based in economics. Humans are by and large extremely rational. So if they have opportunities, they're going to do the right thing. They're going to get a normal job, et cetera. But if there are no opportunities, you know, people start to feel a little bit pessimistic, which leads to uh, unraveling of the social fabric. And that's kind of where I think we are today. Um, and now let's talk about Bitcoin for a second. Um, so Satoshi Nakamoto, which is a pseudonymous creator, released a white paper in 2008 describing Bitcoin. Early 2009 released it. So some anonymous person or persons released the software. And it was right after the global financial crisis. And the creator of Bitcoin or creators, they understood this monetary history. They understood why gold was good money. And Bitcoin was designed as a new form of money that has the scarcity element of gold. There are only 21 million Bitcoins that will ever be created. And it's also interesting and better than gold because you can teleport it around the world. So think of it like this new element that we discovered that you can break into a million tiny little pieces. Each Bitcoin can be broken into hundreds of millions of pieces and you can transport it pretty much um, instantly around the world. So you sort of take what works and you approve it. And money is actually a foundational element in society. It creates this membrane that allows us to cooperate better. And a term I like to use is social scalability, which was coined by Nick Zabo. And it essentially means humans' ability to cooperate flexibly over large numbers across space and time. So how good are we as a species, a global species, to cooperate? 
And things that increase social scalability would be things like property rights or stable rule of law, communication tools, the internet, uh, and also money. And so money is this foundational thing that if we improve our monetary system, everyone is better off because of that. And, you know, going from the Bible, which I'm not religious, but this quote is great. Um, if you build a house on sand, it's not going to last very long. But if you build a house on granite, it will last a thousand years. And Bitcoin is that granite. It is that foundational layer to humanity uh, for a monetary system for humanity. And so that's kind of like the high level of why it matters. And we can get into some sort of nitty gritty stuff about Bitcoin. Like it's, it's actually free and open source software that anyone can run. The users who participate control the network, completely decentralized. It's very hard to co-op. So no government can come in and insert its political will and, and make changes to the system. And that's really important for a future because right now we have a highly politicized money that's working against us. And most people are not aware. Um, it also fundamentally solved digital scarcity, which is kind of a trippy concept where most people think about a digital file. Let's say I send you an MP3 and then you just copy paste and email it off to your friend. And that one file is copied to an, an infinity on the internet. However, what Satoshi created was digital scarcity, meaning if I own one Bitcoin um, and I send it to you, you know, you know with 100% certainty that I no longer have access to it. And that's a you know, several decade long problem that was trying to be solved. And the, the sort of the ethos of Bitcoin is also important. Um, it's open, it's borderless, it's neutral, it's censorship resistant and a few other properties like that. It's maintained by the smartest developers on our planet, and it's very hard to stop. And so you can think about Napster versus BitTorrent as an example. So Napster was a centralized company that offers file storage, and as soon as it got big enough, the government shut it down because the music studio said, hey, they're stealing our music. And since Napster was run by a company, the government calls Napster and shuts it down. Then a few years later, BitTorrent was... Um, was sort of evolved out of that problem. And BitTorrent is a peer-to-peer -peer software that essentially exists everywhere and nowhere at the same time. There's no one to call, there's no one to shut down. And BitTorrent exists today, and the government, there's nothing really that they can do about it. And Bitcoin is sort of the BitTorrent of money in the same way that it's, it's hard to take down. Pretty much impossible. Brandon, let, let, me, let me kind of jump in for just a minute to, to ask you if this metaphor works, because I've had a lot of people ask me about Bitcoin. You know, they're used to having a, a silver dollar in their pocket or something. You know, you know what, how do I get a Bitcoin? What do I do with it? How, you know, how, how does all this move around? What is it about? And, of course, we forget that the dollar is, is just money that we've agreed on the value, and the value is changing all the time. Uh, and Bitcoin's no different. It's a bunch of people who've agreed that that these little bits on your computer are worth something. And, you know, somebody will send you a piece of luggage if you send them a few bits on your computer. And it's just, it's a monetary system people agreed on. So here's the way I've tried to describe it because people are confused about a public key and a private key. And, you know, what does all this mean? And so, uh, and then, then we'll get to the blockchain, which to me is the key, of course, to everything, because it's decentralized. There's, 
nobody keeping track of all the bitcoins. It's everybody keeping track. It's public. It's a public ledger. And, and the reason it can, can work is because everybody is checking everybody else all the time and agreeing that it works. So here's the way I kind of try to tell my friends, and, and it's probably really too elementary and, and doesn't work right. But I say, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain is like a, a big bank of safe deposit box. You walk into a bank and there's a safe deposit room. You go in the room and here are the safe deposit boxes. If I want, you know, when I used to work for my dad in his dime store, and we'd close the store at night, get all the cash and, and deposits in a bank bag. We'd walk down to the bank and put it in a slot so it would be in our deposit that night. Well, here's this big wall of bank deposit slots, and how do you know where to get it? Well, it's your public key. And I give you my public key, and you walk to this wall of deposit box, you find mine, and you slip some money in for me. Now, there's only one key that opens that. The bank doesn't have a key in the case of Bitcoin. The only key is your private key, and it's on your computer, or it's in your phone, or wherever you keep it. But your Bitcoin you know, program is actually a key to this box that people put money in for you. And you can go into your box and take money out and put in somebody else's box too. But that's kind of how I describe it. It's very simplistic, but it's it's the only way I can kind of get it across to people. And, and I know there's holes in that story, but uh, take it from there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually think that's more advanced than you think. I wasn't even going to bring up public key, private key cryptography, because sometimes that, that gets a little too advanced. But I think the analogy is fair. Uh, another easy analogy is it's like a Google Sheets. It's a spreadsheet that everyone can write to, but no one can just change the rules on. Or um, everyone's house has an address. That's our public key. So you can say, I live at you know 1928, uh, but I'm the only one who has a physical key to open my door. Right? Yeah, I like Same that. kind of idea. Um, but yeah, it, it's important to note that Bitcoin is shared by all these different computers. We each have a computer that runs the software, if you choose. No one's required to do this. But then that ledger is copied over millions of computers around the world. And so let's say there was a nuclear bomb in, Nor in North America and all of North America is wiped out. Okay, we lose all the North American computers, but there's millions more spread all, all around the world. And the ledger, which just says who owns what, that will persist. Sean, you have a question? You want to go? Let me uh, unmute you here. Yeah, hopefully it's relevant. I'm very uneducated with this. It sounded, what I heard you say was uh, there's a, a limited amount of Bitcoin that sounds like eventually it could be diluted. Is that relevant? Um, I, I don't think, I don't see, what do you mean by diluted? Well, if you have a million of something and then a million people break it down to a dollar, does it still have, or whatever, does it still have value? Does that make sense? So, so if you have one, it's worth a hundred, and then you split that one hundred up into a million pieces because... Are you understanding my... Yeah, I think I can answer that. And and in a... So there's 21 Bitcoin, 21 million total Bitcoins. That's all they'll ever be created. Each Bitcoin can be broken down into 100 million different fundamental units. And those are called Satoshis. 
And you can think of that like a dollar and cents. So one Bitcoin is like a dollar and you break a dollar into a hundred pennies. You can break one Bitcoin into a hundred million Satoshis. But if you look at the price, so right now, if you wanted to go buy one Bitcoin, it's like $9,000, something like that. But if you wanted to buy one Satoshi, so one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin, you know, you divide 9,000 by a hundred million, which I'm not sure what that is. Very less than a penny, obviously. Does that make sense? The, the, the price is constantly changing, Sean, in that, uh, you know, in the early days, uh, somebody bought a pizza for the equivalent of like $2 million today because it wasn't worth very much back then because people didn't agree it was worth much. And right now it's worth about 9200 bucks, but, uh, you know, it spiked to 20000 at one time. Uh, back in the early days of Bitcoin, you know, this is back in 2009 or 10 or something like that. I, I bought four Bitcoins at $300 a piece. And, and, and uh, I, I, I have been donated uh, one and a half Bitcoins. So I have five and a half Bitcoins that I have holding. One half for myself and one for each of my five grandchildren. And, you know, I would have had to spend them by now if it wasn't for Patreon because, you know, I, I would have had to live on that, that money. And fortunately, you know, my $300 investment went up to 9000 So uh, it worked out pretty well for me. But hopefully I can hold on to those and I'll never have to spend them. And I can give one to each of my grandchildren, uh, you know, 20 years from now. I think it'll be worth a lot of money then. Or I have missed the window and given it to them now. <laughs> you know, but, you know, you roll the dice, right? Thank, I think that's you. an important point. Thank you. And yeah, you bet, Sean. Um, I, what I was going to say is, I think that's an important point. It's uh, a, a logical question: is let, let's just assume you're interested in Bitcoin and you want to acquire some, or you don't, and you want to know how would I approach that as an investment. So where Bitcoin is now is it's sort of being discovered. The whole world is waking up to this new parallel financial system, and so. Okay, it's worth $9,000 today. That sounds like a lot, but it's really not. The, the whole, all the Bitcoins combined is still 50 times smaller than what gold is worth. So it's a tiny, tiny, tiny asset. And since there's only a fixed supply, there can only be 21 million. If more people in the future decide that they want to hold some Bitcoin, the price can only go up. And so the rational approach to Bitcoin today, might as well just get the investment side out of the way, is to put a very small percentage of your net worth into Bitcoin and you know money you don't need today, you don't need next year, and just put it away. Don't think about it for a while. Um, that's called hodling or holding in the Bitcoin community, but the terms don't matter. But Lorenzo, you're a hodler. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, you might want to mention too how Bitcoin is created, that they're not 21 million in effect available right now and they're they're being created as we speak and you might want to bring up mining and how that works yeah yeah it sounds like you want to go a little bit more technical than i was thinking so well, I, uh, I i think everybody here is really interested and in, and after that would you follow up about how somebody goes about buying some bitcoin today what's a, a couple ways to do it yeah good idea um so the mining process is it's actually uh, modeled after gold and so that's where the, the term comes from. But really what's happening is there are people who run computer networks that are mining. And what those computer networks are doing is they're playing the accountant and the security of the system. 
And we don't need to get into the nitty gritty of how that occurs, but they essentially buy these specialized computers, they connect them to the network, and what they're doing is they're keeping track of all the transactions. So I send one Bitcoin to Lorenzo, the miners collect all those transactions, and then every 10 minutes, they add that group of transactions to the ledger. And in, in, uh, in a trade, essentially what they're earning, the miners are earning, they earn newly created Bitcoin in exchange for the work that they're doing for the network. And the, the supply of Bitcoin, there's right now about 18 million, a little over 18 million that are in circulation. And every 10 minutes, a, a little chunk of new Bitcoins are created that go to the miners and then they get distributed out through whoever wants to purchase them. And is that sufficient on mining, would you say? Cool. And in terms of acquiring Bitcoin, um, that's very based on your jurisdiction. So I don't know where everyone's located here. It looks like people are in uh, more than one country. And so look up your local, your local area to see what makes the most sense for you. But I'll speak to a couple in the United States. And I'm uh, just full disclosure, I'm biased. I work for a company called Swan Bitcoin. I use the product. I think it's a great product. But I'll bring up a couple different options. Most people, I assume, are familiar with Cash App, which is an app on your phone. It's owned by Square, which has the little uh, terminals you can swipe a card at, like at your farmer's market or something. And it's also owned by Twitter. So that's a very large, you know, Fortune 100 company. And they have an app called Cash App. And you just, you know, log in on your phone, connect your bank account, and you can just quickly buy as much Bitcoin as you want. I guess they cut you off at 10000 a week, but most people won't be spending that much. And so you can just get an app and you can buy $5 worth. You can buy $100 worth. You can buy whatever you want, whenever you want. And I would say that's probably the easy answer for most people. Now, I'll contrast that with, with Swan, where I work. And what Swan does is it's an automated plan. And so you would connect your bank account similar to Cash App. And you would say, I want to buy $10 worth of Bitcoin every week or $100 a month or whatever you want. And you just set up that plan, hit go, and then it just automatically pulls from your bank account based on the plan you set up. And both are good options. I like Swan because you can sort of take the emotional side out, sort of set it and forget it. Um, Cash App is also a great option. And so that, those are the two that I'd recommend in the U.S. And if you're not in the U.S., feel free to DM me and I'll get you some good options for that. I notice even in, in grocery stores here in Southern California, there are machines where you can go and buy Bitcoin. There are. Yeah, there's Bitcoin ATMs where you yeah. swipe a card or you insert dollars and then you can acquire some Bitcoin that way. Um, the one benefit of those is some of those let you do it anonymously. So you insert cash and they don't know who's buying it. Um, that's nice for privacy's sake. But most of those services offer very high fees. So you might pay 5%, 10% fees, where Cash App's around 2%, Swan's around 1%. And so if that matters to you, you can kind of think about the fee structure that you'd like to do. Um, does anyone else have any sort of general questions about Bitcoin? If not, I would love to move on to exploring Bitcoin through the lens of mycology, which is a lot of the work I've done. I've got a quick one, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so um, recently there was the halving period, and I don't, I sort of understand what that is and like what it does, but I was just curious as like what that's gonna, how that's gonna impact an investor potentially. Yeah, good, good question. So remember when we talked about mining and how every 10 minutes new Bitcoins are introduced in the supply, they're minted, 
And every four years, the issuance rate, so the amount of new Bitcoins that are created every 10 minutes, decreases by half. So the first four-year period, 50 new Bitcoins were created every 10 minutes. Then the next four years, so years four to eight, 25 new Bitcoins were created each every 10 minutes. And then it went to 12.5. And on about May, early May this year, it went down to 6.25 Bitcoins per 10 minutes. And so if you think about that on a chart, the new supply is increased very sharply at first, and now it's starting to level off. And so um, what's interesting now is the, the inflation rate. So the newly, in, uh, newly minted Bitcoins per year is around 2%, which is the same as gold. So right now, the inflation rate of gold and Bitcoin is roughly the same. In four more years, the inflation rate of Bitcoin will be around 1%, which is about half as much as gold. And how, that, how to approach that as an, from an investor standpoint is, as time goes on, there's fewer and fewer new Bitcoins being issued. And so that total supply is continuing to be uh, constrained and constrained. And if the supply is, is tight and there's more demand, then the price will typically go up. And we can go into some mechanics on how this affects miners, but I, I don't think it would be a good use of our time um, with the general audience. It's quite, quite nuanced and it's not terribly important. <laughs> and, and I've spent a lot of time studying it and reading about it and I'm still confused. So <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> we should move on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a good point. You know, I, I've been um, full time in this space. I, I get pretty obsessive about things and I fall down the rabbit hole hard and it's been three years of nonstop learning. And I still learn every day, every week. I'm humbled by new conversations. And so it is a very slippery thing to understand. Uh, for fully, right? It can be something simple. It's a fixed supply asset. It's a new monetary system. You should own a little in case it catches on, right? It can be that simple. But if you're uh, intellectually curious, there's a lot of little rabbit holes to go down. And um, yeah, that, that's kind of how Bitcoin is. And so one way that I find that's useful to understand it is to compare it to the natural world. And I'm an amateur mycologist, just a foraging mushroom nerd. And I, I came across a nice analogy that's been well received. And, and lots of people have said, you know, I didn't understand what Bitcoin was and this helped. And so I'll try to break down a little bit more about what, what my perspective is here. And before I do, I think it's important to note that Terrence McKenna actually originally compared our computer internet to mycelium. And mycelium is the sort of the underground root structure of a fungus. And it is a one cell walled underground internet, you can say. And it connects all the trees and plants together. It trades resources. It sends information bi-directionally. It is an underground brain, an underground internet, a wood wide web that all of our forests and all of our ecosystems are tied to. And we're just barely starting to study fungi and starting to understand them now, which is a criminal in my perspective. Uh, fungi are the building blocks of our planet. They're the grand molecular dissemblers. They recycle all the organic matter that hits the ground. And we're starting to insert chemicals into the mycelium, radioactive chemicals, and we can watch the trading. There's actually a market underground 24-7 that's trading resources. Now plants, uh, what they do is they, they collect photons with their little solar panel leaves 
and they inhale carbon dioxide. So they're collecting carbon and they're collecting energy and photons. They mash them together and create sugars. And that's food. And then what they do is they, they sell the food, sell the sugars down to the mushrooms. And the mushrooms are little miners. They got their little tentacles and they're exploring underground. And they're also the best chemists on our planet. So they create custom enzymes to externally digest their environment. And they're mining important minerals that the plants find valuable. Things like nitrogen, potassium, and other different chemicals like that. And so, yeah, the mushrooms mine the minerals, they trade them to the plants, the plants in turn trade the, the sugars down to the mushrooms. And so that's kind of how our ecology is set up. And if you think back about 500, uh, 500 million years ago, there were no land plants, there were no land animals, all life was in the oceans, and instead we had this barren, rocky wasteland of a planet. Until some fateful partnership occurred, which was the mycelium, the fungus, and different types of plants, uh, what we believe to be right now is, is some sort of algae. And the fungus and the algae came together and they formed a symbiosis on land. The fungus is digesting the rocks and the, the algae is producing sugars. And so they teamed up and over hundreds of millions of years, they converted this barren, rocky, volcanic wasteland into the Garden of Eden that we have now. And that's why we have topsoil is because of this, this process and this symbiosis. Um, so that's just a quick little nerd out on mycelium and, and mushrooms. Um, let's, let's start to compare that a little bit to how, um, how Bitcoin is tied into that. Let, let, me, let me just add one, one more uh, uh, footnote to that. And that is that the mycelium is what supports the forest. Without the mycelium, there would be no forest. And I think that may be an interesting uh, metaphor going forward with Bitcoin and whatever new economy comes out. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really important point. There would be no forest without it. And it's also important to realize that um, if we go back to um, early evolutionary theory, the, the idea was, I forgot the exact phrase, Darwin phrase, but it's like with tooth and claw, that was sort of the, the analogy. And it essentially means that all organisms are competing. And we, we our assumption of how biological life was, was everyone's competing for resources and it's this cutthroat thing. And that's true in some small instances, but what we're learning now about ecology is everything's connected. And it's much more symbiotic than we once realized. And it's kind of funny thinking about humans who we have this hubris and at some point we realized we could manipulate our environment and we thought we were gods and we thought we could leave our ecology and just, you know, monocrop things and all this nonsense. And we're going to look back one day and look, I can't believe we did this to our planet. I can't believe we did this to our food. I can't believe we did this to our medicine. And I also think Bitcoin will be one of those things where we, we can't believe we live without Bitcoin. Um, so let, let's get into some, some comparisons here. So if you think about the intelligence network that mycelium is, right, that underground root structure sends information, that network archetype is not only found in mycelium. That is a strategy employed by many other things in nature. So that network archetype is found if you look at the, if you zoom way out and look at the galaxy, that's how dark matter and dark energy is formed in that network. Neurons in our brain form the same type of network. Our computer internet forms that network. Bitcoin forms that network. And so when we see this, net, this uh, strategy, this biological strategy appearing throughout the, throughout the planet, throughout the universe, what does that tell us? 
that tells us that it's a, a, a strong, a, a good strategy, a strategy that works, right? Nature doesn't make mistakes. So any, any strategies we see now that are being employed are there because they work. And so when we look at Bitcoin through this lens, it's also a decentralized intelligence network. And to me, that, that makes Bitcoin seem uh, a bit more robust, it, it, like it's on to something, like it's, it's truth. And so that gives me confidence for the future. And another interesting thing with both Bitcoin and mycelium is a, a phrase called anti-fragile, which is from Nassim Taleb, a wonderful thinker and author, um, kind of an angry person on Twitter, but a very, very sharp mind. And I'll, I'll describe what anti-fragile means. So if you think about that network underground, the mycelium, and there's an invader, some bacteria or another fungus that's attacking the fungus we're sort of using in first person here. What happens is the mycelial network sends information to the little mushroom scientists. They create a new custom enzyme and they ship that enzyme over to where the person, the other fungus is attacking them and it handles the predator. And through that process, it builds a chemical library of molecules that it uses to defend itself. And you could say that that's learning because over time, these mycelial mats develop an increased cost, uh, library, which it can then use to sustain itself long-term. And Bitcoin displays the same characteristics. Let's say there's a bug in the software or someone's attacking the network in some way. Information travels throughout the Bitcoin network. Eventually it uh, arrives at a developer, mushroom scientist. The developer creates some new software code, patches the network, creates a custom enzyme, and then it distributes itself throughout the network. And now that previous vulnerability is now patched. The whole network learns and now the system's stronger. And that's, that's what Bitcoin is. That's what mycelium is, this anti-fragility. When there is chaos, it actually becomes stronger. And if you compare that to other things like our fiat-based monetary system, if you look at 0809 or what's happening right now, if we have a mortgage crisis and the banks fail, what happens? The whole system explodes. And then the, then the central banks have to bail it out, which is essentially robbing from the little guy, and the system repeats. More inequality afterwards. Whereas in a Bitcoin system, the system can handle the shock. Everyone redistributes resources where it needs to be, and we, we grow from there. And I think that's really important when looking at this long term, because many people think, well, what if Bitcoin uh, gets so big, the government wants to shut it down? Well, remember, it's distributed. It's on everyone's computers. You can't shut it down. And if you attack it, the system learns and it gets stronger. So there is some sort of intelligence built into the system. Let, let me uh, and this isn't isn't meant to be criticism at all, but let me kind of uh, uh, expand a little bit on your idea. And that is. Uh, to add a word in your description, you know, as a lawyer, I worry about words. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking that the, the mycelium uh, comparison is the Bitcoin blockchain is like mycelium. Uh, and it's the same thing as what you're saying, but it's a little more specific in that it's the technical structure of how Bitcoin works. And it's not just Bitcoin that works like mycelium. Uh, most cryptocurrencies, and, and the reason I feel blockchain technology is so important is people don't realize this. Right now, IBM is probably the leading developer of blockchain technology, but blockchain technology is being adopted by businesses and banks and governments all over the world. 
because it gets rid of that trusted third party. You don't need somebody keeping track of your ledger or, or your, your bank account or anything else. And so uh, I, I'm just saying that uh, it's not just Bitcoin that's kind of going to upset a lot of things. It's the blockchain technology itself that gets rid of the third party. Now, when it comes to, to money, which is the thing that makes the world go around, you know, that's what runs everything. The Bitcoin blockchain really is, I think, uh, crucial in what's going on. Uh, although I think we can also talk about the Ethereum blockchain that you can program uh, things into it too. So uh, I don't know if you want to get into all of that, uh, but we'll let you go where you want to from there. But these are things that kind of run through my head right now. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a, a good good topic to bring up. A lot of people have, if you're exposed to Bitcoin, you've probably been exposed to other cryptocurrencies or other uh, attempted uses for a blockchain. And I actually have a, a different perspective here. So when I initially bumped into Bitcoin, um, I quickly dove into Ethereum and was looking at all these incredible potential use cases for a blockchain. And since doing extensive research, I, I sort of systematically eliminated most other use cases relative to what we have out there today. And the main reason why is uh, Bitcoin is most famously known for the blockchain, but it's actually not just one technology. Uh, Satoshi stitched together roughly five different technologies, all of which had already existed in the past, and he just uh, bolted them on together in a unique way. And the unique way that they're bolted on is what creates the properties of uh, being able to eliminate a middleman and censorship resistance and decentralization. And so, yeah, the blockchain, which essentially just keeps track of data, it's just a data structure that's linked over time. But there's also a peer-to-peer -peer network, which is all the computers together sending transactions that gossip with each other and, and information travels. It also has public key and private key cryptography, which we mentioned. And it also has the proof of work function, which I don't think we have time to go into in depth now. But that's, that's probably the most fundamentally, uh, that's the biggest breakthrough in, in Bitcoin. And all the whole industry is proof of work. And... Yeah, I, I don't think we should spend too much now time that's, on that's it. That's where it gets really complex, but you're, you're right. That's, that's the cornerstone of it all. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, in terms of the other networks, uh, Ethereum, what IBM's doing, et cetera, um, my perspective here is what they're doing is they're saying, okay, Bitcoin offers XYZ properties, open, borderless, censorship resistant, et cetera. Uh, you can remove the middleman. And what they're doing is they're pulling out strictly the blockchain which is just a slow time-linked database. And they're neglecting things like proof of work and the peer-to-peer -peer layer and all these other things. And those other things in constellation is what produces the properties. And so I think we're going to look back in 10 years and say, we, we sort of had this little hype bubble around what Bitcoin offers and blockchains can't do actually everything we thought they could do. Now, long, long term, there will be some really interesting things coming out of this. But I think right now we're trying to figure out what those things are. And I don't think anything other than Bitcoin right now, and, and to a lesser extent, Ethereum, uh, I just don't think anything's really going to last long term. And I, I, I really appreciate you pointing this out because, you know, I just kind of read the headlines and I dip my toes in it and all and some of it makes sense. But what you're saying right now is really making a lot more sense to me. So, uh, and it's giving me a lot better understanding of Bitcoin and why it is uh, sort of the cornerstone of all this. 
Definitely. I'm really happy to hear that. It's not an easy road to, um, you know, first be enamored with all the potential use cases and then start to realize one by one, oh, no, it doesn't do what I think it does. That was a struggle for me. I I actually bought URLs for the psychedelic DAO, a distributed autonomous organization, and I was going to turn the psychedelic salon over to a DAO, you know, and, and, but then, like you say, the, the deeper I got into it, the less practical it seemed. (laughs) one day one day someone here on this call will carry your legacy forward and the psychedelic (laughs) salon will be an autonomous organization i do believe that Um, i hope so i just don't think we're anywhere near that yet um okay i think if we're gonna try to keep it to an hour i would love to uh tie it back to the psychedelic community because there's a tremendous amount of overlap between bitcoiners and the blockchain community in general and the community here and I Here's what, let's do it, Brandon. Let's, let's keep this to an hour, and we're going to follow through on what you're saying right now. And then I'd like to have you come back in a week or so as people, you know, I'll get the podcast out, people get thinking about these things, when people come back with more questions, if that's okay with you. I would be honored. Good. Okay. Yeah. Take it away. Awesome. Awesome. So I just have a couple bullets here I'd love to run through. And then if anyone has questions on this, I'd also like to make it interactive. So I'm going to try to just riff through this in five or 10 minutes and leave some time for questions. So cool. first thing is uh, the word psychedelic, depending on what definition you look at most, my, my favorite definition is psyche and delos, which is mind manifest. And if you look at that, um, Bitcoin is a psychedelic. And what I mean by that is money, whatever you have in your mind, you can manifest what you want in the world. So money I want to buy a car, right? It's a pretty bad example, but I can manifest a car by spending my money. So I think just right off the bat, the definition is kind of funny. Um, Now, Bitcoin's history is also very tied to the psychedelic community, starting with the Silk Road. So in Bitcoin's early history, I'm sure many people are familiar with this. There were darknet markets, uh, most famously the Silk Road, where individuals can buy and sell um, various illicit drugs, um, some other things. And Bitcoin was used as the money on that system. It became wildly popular. People had quality control over their substances, peer reviews. It was actually a very healthy market that produced violence. Um, it was very good for the community. And so there's, there's that early tie there. And what we all know here is that there's a cognitive, uh, there's an attack on our cognitive liberty. We're told that we cannot have certain plants, fungi, et cetera, molecules, And so we don't have cognitive liberty, which I'm sure everyone on the call can agree that that's important. I I can't imagine a government regulating what I do in my own home with my own consciousness. And so cognitive liberty is important. And on the money side, we need monetary liberty. And that means individuals are free to choose what they consider money, how they trade it, who they trade it with. And many people in the Bitcoin community want to build parallel society. They don't necessarily agree with the way culture is trending. And so the, the psychedelic commune of the 60s, they're coming up in, in a new iteration now. And in order to pull that off, you do need to separate from the matrix as much as possible. And one way that can help that is with uh, a money that people can use peer to peer rather than relying on the system. Because if the system says, Lorenzo, I don't like your commune, they just turn your money off. And that's not good. And so we're being oppressed with our money in the same way that we're being oppressed with our cognitive liberty. And there's a, a funny meme in the Bitcoin community where uh, building the Citadel, which is essentially a Bitcoin commune, 
And so there's a tremendous amount of overlap there uh, in a funny way. Uh, let's see. I also polled on my Twitter feed. I, I said, hey, Bitcoiners, what do you think about psychedelics? Uh, 518 people uh, submitted the poll and 78% of Bitcoiners, according to my Twitter feed, said that they support psychedelics. And subjectively, I've had hundreds of people reach out to me. I've been doing some Bitcoin-focused podcasts on the subject. And what we're finding is that Bitcoiners are very supportive of this. Um, in general, Bitcoiners are curious, um, self-starter, autodidacts, a little bit of a rebel, open-minded, uh, many of the same characteristics that I find in the psychedelic community. Both communities are somewhat on the fringe. They both carry somewhat of a stigma. And, you know, it also, they both also lead to personal transformation, which I know sounds crazy when you first get introduced to Bitcoin. But it is sort of like a true north. It is this fundamental thing that we can rebuild society on. It is the granite. It is the operating layer that we need to increase our, our species, our chance of survival, our, our increase our ability to cooperate. And so it leads to tremendous uh, spiritual awakenings. Again, I know how crazy that sounds with Bitcoin. And it also leads to tremendous evangelism. I'm sure many of us can relate the first time you really had a deep psychedelic experience. You wanted to tell everyone. And, you know, it's probably best that you don't in your raving state coming down. Um, but Bitcoin is the same thing. Once you see the light, you want to evangelize. And so I think they both speak to deep fundamental truths that uh, rational, open-minded people will come to love. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think that's uh, maybe one more. Um, dissolving boundaries. So that's, uh, I think that was popularized by Terrence. And psychedelics obviously dissolve boundaries between self and other, between head and heart, between culture and, and your own uh, concept of an ego, et cetera. And Bitcoin does the same. So right now we're sort of isolated in these silos. Maybe you live in a country and you, you can't trade with Iran because the bad, big bad U.S. government says don't trade with Iran and they don't let you. And with Bitcoin, you can trade freely with Iran. So we're dissolving geographic boundaries. We're dissolving boundaries that banks put on people. So if you're a woman in the Middle East, you cannot open a bank account. You might be in the worst situation in your home and there's absolutely nothing you can do. However, with a smartphone, access to the internet, you can control your own money with Bitcoin. You might be able to use that to save some money and get out of your personal situation. And so dissolving boundaries there again. It also enables people all around the world to contribute in one global economy. So again, think of a developing country they're locked into their local currency. Maybe it's uh, Argentina, Venezuela, Cyprus, Greece. All, all these examples right now, Turkey is experiencing inflation. These places, the individuals that live in those countries are forced to use the money supply that their country uses. And if that country mismanages the money supply on purpose or on accident, the people that live there are forced to pay the consequences of that. And so what we can do with blockchain, with Bitcoin, with these other options is we can allow those people in developing countries to use the money that they control. So they're not tied to the fate of their local currency. And that's really important if we want to unlock human capital. Think of all the Maya Angelos, the Thomas Edison's, you know, the great inventors of the future that are stuck in Venezuela right now and they can't get out of it because of the financial system there. And so Bitcoin frees humanity, it unlocks human capital, and it dissolves all the boundaries that are being put on us that really only serve the governments and pol uh, political structures that support them. And so that's you know, probably... I'm getting, 
That, that's a great, great uh, uh, wrap up there. And, and uh, one of the examples that I think is so important to realize that if uh, here in Southern California, there are a lot of migrant workers uh, and most of them get paid. They get a check. They go to a check cashing company. They pay that company 20% of their paycheck. So then, then they can wire it down to their friends and they have to pay a wire fee to send it down to their family. If they were paid in Bitcoin, they would get their, their paycheck on their phone and instantly they could send it to their family for less than a dollar fee and their family could go to any of 10,000 stores in, in Mexico alone that accept Bitcoin. Now, I know the fees go up and down and that's one of the problems right now, but whatever the fee is today in Bitcoin, it's significantly less than a paycheck cashing operation that then charges you to wire transfer money. So uh, there are ways to do it. And then another thing I think, uh, it's no longer going to be very important, I guess, but uh, if, if my grandkids were traveling around uh, you know, the world uh, like I did, uh, and out on a wing and a prayer there, if, if I could send them Bitcoin to their phone, if they were in trouble, they could call me and, and within minutes I could have some cash to them. Uh, that's a great uh, comfort, you know. Now, uh, with the, the pandemic, there's not going to be a lot of that traveling going on. But, you know, things are going to change. And like you said, I, I really believe, and I, I believe this long before the pandemic, I believe that, that before I die, Bitcoin is going to be one of the foundational currencies uh, Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency. I'm not going to say Bitcoin, but I, I think Bitcoin has such a head start. It's probably the one that's going to be there. But, uh, you know, if, if, if nothing else, uh, I suggest people should just get $100 worth of Bitcoin and watch it. You know, that if you have $100 worth of Bitcoin, you're going to pay attention to it. You know, <laughs> that one of the first things I ever do every day is check the price of Bitcoin and I don't intend to sell it. You know, I'm going to give it to my grandkids. I just hope it's worth something when I give it to them. And so uh, the longer I stay alive, the more value it is for them. You know, <laughs> it's the only thing they're going to get from me other than a lot of hot air. <laughs> Important point. So a couple of things quick. You mentioned a 20% fee just to transfer your own money to your own family. Number one, that's insane. But if you think about that, 20%, that's one day of your five-day work week that you're just giving to the company to transfer your money across the border. That is systematic theft. That is time theft. That requires you to work 20% longer in your career in order to retire. So your time is being stolen there, which deeply upsets me. Um, just had to mention that one. Um, I've right. seen a couple of comments here, a couple of important comments here. Uh, what happens if we get hit by a solar flare? So this is a fun question. Um, number one, if a solar flare happens, theoretically, all the computers break, right? That would be the risk. And what's interesting about Bitcoin is the, the community is so hardcore that Bitcoin is totally fine. And let me give you a couple examples why. There are people today right now who take who download the Bitcoin blockchain. Every 10 minutes, a new block of transactions comes in. They download it into physical storage, which is writing on paper or some other medium. And then it's locked in a Faraday cage, which is a, a, a essentially protects against any type of solar flares. And so if the whole world, internet communications, all the bank accounts, they all wipe out because of a solar flare, the Bitcoin network will survive. The ledger will survive. It would take time to reboot and we'd have to rediscover computer science and hopefully we have books to do that. Uh, but the ledger itself, who owns what? That's not going anywhere. 
is a fun question. Uh, we have just a couple minutes left. Does anyone else have questions? I'd love to address stuff that you guys have, you know, live here today. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, the way in which uh, being able to trend to send money without fees is disruptive. Are there other ways that you can think of specific ways that people can use Bitcoin disruptively um, that may not be obvious, like to your average person who isn't schooled in this stuff? Yeah, yeah, I love that question. Um, I view I view Bitcoin as a political protest, and anytime you're buying Bitcoin, you're also selling dollars or euros or yen. And so, where you put your capital, where you put your your stored work, your stored time, where you store that in money is a political act. And so, you can put dollars in the bank account, or you can put Bitcoin in your savings account. And one of them takes away from the state, and the other one supports the state. And so at a very fundamental level, buying Bitcoin is, is a vote for a alternative monetary system. Now, other ways you could say, you know, there are lots of illegal things you can do with Bitcoin. Bitcoin supports black markets and gray markets. Um, theoretically, it's much harder for a state to enforce um, unlawful search and seizure or abuse of uh, property rights. And so if the government says, we don't like what you're doing, they can just steal your money. And it happens all the time. And so Bitcoin is not, uh, it's, it's censorship resistant or unconfiscatable, which is a made up word, but it works. And so no one can take your money because the password to your money, you can memorize in your head. If you think back of um, Nazi Germany, there were Jews fleeing uh, various parts of Europe. And they were trying to sew gold into their clothes in order to cross borders because it was being confiscated. If we had Bitcoin, then those people would convert all their wealth into Bitcoin, memorize 12 words as a password, walk across the border. Look, I have no money and grab the first phone when you get across and all your money's there. And so it's a very empowering technology. It's a tool for the people. It fights back against the state. Um, we can also talk about how fiat money is able to fund endless wars or any political wills that there might be and how Bitcoin sort of slowly erodes power away from the state. And if we do have another one of these, which I hope we do, we can get into some implications of what a future world is where Bitcoin is the monetary standard, or it's, it's big enough to sort of push back against oppressive states, which at a very, Bitcoin doesn't have to be the world's money to be wildly successful and good for humanity. It can be a, an asset like gold that protects people when they need it most. Hopefully that answered your question, Andrew. I'll tell you what, uh, this brings us to a, a really good place to stop for tonight, but I have so many more things I'd like to talk about. This has been quite fascinating. I think we'll wait for two or three weeks and I'll put a podcast out with what we talked about tonight and uh, we'll, we'll see what other questions come up. Uh, you know, I want to talk about, uh, you know, people think that's complete privacy on Bitcoin and it's not really that private, you know, so there's things like that people need to know about. And then, uh, you know, I, I really think that uh, until 2020 rolled around, Bitcoin was something that I really knew was going to happen. But now in this year, I think it's critical. I think people getting involved in Bitcoin today 
are going to have a, a big head start on what's going to happen 10 years from now. So uh, I, I'll put this out in the podcast and, and get the information out to people. And then in a, a few weeks, we'll get together again. And I, I already have a bunch of questions. I'm sure everybody else will. So uh, uh, Brandon, I, I really appreciate you being here tonight. I know everybody else does. And, uh, and, and I also appreciate all the time you put into researching this because I, I got lazy and gave up. <laughs> so, well, listen, everybody. Uh, I'm, uh, actually, on Thursday morning at 1030 uh, Pacific time, which is 630 at night in England, uh, we'll have another salon here. And I'm sure that we'll be picking up on some of this discussion, but I want to save a bunch of it until we get Brandon back. So uh, uh, until, until next week, everybody, uh, keep the old faith and stay high. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And uh, if you're like me, you probably have some questions. For example, uh, in the chat that took place while Brandon was talking, questions came up about the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining, as well as the possibility of Bitcoin becoming a digital version of gold. One of the questions that I plan on raising uh, next time he's here is whether people who aren't in a position to make any investments right now, whether they should maybe still think about buying a small amount of Bitcoin anyway, just to uh, become familiar with how it works. Well, my guess is that it isn't only for uh, maybe a few deep web drug purchases that uh, you're going to need to have a little cryptocurrency on hand in the years ahead. There may be other reasons for it. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.